0: There are two uh, Bible verses that are great difficulties for you as a public preacher of the word of God. One is the one in Jude where it says that you must contend for the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints. The other one is the one in 1 Timothy 4 where it says that let everybody see your progress. Now it's holding those two together is a great trick. To let people see your progress and it's your progress in life and doctrine so it's your progress in doctrine means that you've got to be making progress you've got to keep growing and developing in your understanding of the Word of God in such fashion that your congregations can see that you are growing in your understanding of the Word of God for that models to them growing and understanding in the Word of God when you are the person who has all the answers It just tyrannises the congregation, it tells them to believe in you as the Pope or it tells them that they too can have all the answers if they just try a little bit harder and one day they will have them. We have all the answers in the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ but we don't understand them. We've got to keep growing in our understanding and modelling the growing in our understanding so that the congregation will grow in its understanding because it will get excited about learning new truths from the old word just as we get excited about learning new truths from the old word when you have no longer able to learn new truths from the old word it's because you've got dementia uh, it's not because there are no more truths to learn uh, there are always more to be learning and growing in our understanding but at the same time What we must contend for and fight for is the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints. So we are not without mooring. It's not as if we are always off onto the latest novelty like the uh, Athenians who rejoiced in finding something new all the time. Part of education is learning the old. Part of education is reinforcement of the truth that you have already gained. And of course the truth that has been given is being given once for all. It's not that new revelation is being given you are growing in your understanding of the old revelation that was there but you will not be finding something that is completely new when you do find something that is completely new you're most likely moved into heresy Uh, it is unlikely that Christians in the last two thousand years have never come across the thought that you have had Uh, it is highly unlikely and it must have been a terrible challenge for the reformers for them to come to understand that they were seeing the Bible so differently from their predecessors but one of the characteristics of the reformers if you read them is their great love of the, of, of the fathers, they're ever always quoting the early fathers of the Christian church to demonstrate that what was they are teaching actually is there already so they perceive the importance of standing within the tradition of Christian orthodoxy while at the same time seeing that the Word of God had been uh, misunderstood by their contemporaries and immediate predecessors now one of our problems is that we are fighters for the truth once for all delivered who never actually hear what the Word of God says because our minds are made up before the Word of God is even opened the other is that we are so fascinated by the latest ideas that we lose touch with the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And we must keep on teaching the truth, the fundamental truth, the basic truth, the orthodox truths of the scriptures, time and time again. Now, all this has got to do with coming to Romans again. Romans chapters 1 to 3, I figure as a well-known bit of the Bible for Bible-believing Protestant, evangelical, converted Christians as any part of the Bible. And so my tendency and temptation is to preach my systematic theology to preach the faith delivered once for all to the saints loosely attached to the epistle of romans that is the great temptation and that makes it harder to prepare than other parts of the bible other parts like i preached through zechariah last year that's easy for me to find out new thoughts because I've never understood Zechariah in the first place nor do I ever think that I've understood Zechariah in the first place so every verse is a new idea for me and I expect it to be new and uh, uh, trying to find out how that connects into the structure of systematic theology is part of the struggle that I have with Zechariah but Romans 1-3 to 3, I think well that's straightforward I know that, I know that, I know that and as long as I'm sitting there saying I know that, I know that, I know that there's every chance that I haven't got the foggiest clue what's being said and so Here is the part of fairly significant struggle to come to terms with what Romans itself might be saying. That is, it's an exercise in humility before the text. Anybody can talk. It's not very difficult. What is fairly difficult is to listen. That is a hard exercise. At the moment my exercise is much easier than your exercise. There is almost no chance that I will fall asleep in the next little while. None. Really, and there is almost no chance that my mind will wander off although it can happen and has been known to happen while speaking but you have terrible trouble not only just keeping awake but concentrating on what I am saying rather than what you are thinking to actually be hearing me with such uh, sympathy of, of, of relationship such concern to understand my mind that you are putting aside your thinking to listen to me properly while at the same time of course being able to retain your thinking to analyze what is being said now if you analyze what is being said before you listen to it you'll most likely get it wrong won't you so you've got to actually listen in order to analyze it well here's the problem we have with Romans and with the Bible as a whole that is technical exegesis never works in the end, there is no methodology and technology by which you can determine what the Bible is saying. There's no kind of rules and principles that will make it all perfectly clear as if it's a kind of mathematical uh, exercise that you can just, by pulling the right levers, get the machine to work for you. Uh we're dealing with words that have a whole variety of semantic, a uh, whole range of semantic uh, meaning that you've got to take into about. We're dealing with grammar and syntax that I always laugh at because whenever a sentence doesn't make sense to the commentators, they suddenly change the rules of grammar. Uh, no matter what rule of grammar you've got, they're always able to, to determine that this is an exception to the rule because the sentence doesn't seem to mean what they're expecting it to mean or wanting it to mean. There are no rules of grammar. There is... A description of the usual practice, which has almost infinite varieties added onto it. It's the, it, that you can't actually do it that way. You've got to look at the context. Yes, but what is the context? It's the context of the verse. It's the context of the chapter. It's the context of the book. It's the context of the Bible. It's the context of the man who wrote it. It's the context of the people to whom it is written. It's the context that God has in mind when he is inspiring it, that is, it is us as well as them. And so the context is our theology and so you've got to tie the verse into the whole theological system that you have and tie it into the whole theology of the Bible. Broughton in his essays is uh, always teasing Donald Robinson who was lecturing at the college at the same time because Donald used to lecture on biblical theology, and Broughton used to claim that his was the biblical theology, and that, Bro- that Donald Robinson's biblical theology was not biblical theology. That true biblical theology is systematic theology. But no one, apart from Broughton, I think, has followed his nomenclature, and everybody understands a distinction between biblical and systematic theology, which dumps systematic theology outside the Bible, which Broughton didn't like. Part of my problem and your problem when we're preparing is that we are preparing in a a preaching context very often. We're preparing for what we're going to say to others. And what we're going to say to others has different context to it, doesn't it? We're trying to preach the gospel, we're trying to evangelise unbelievers. So I'm reading Romans to see what it can say to the unbeliever. I'm preaching it for pastoral purposes to see what I can say to the congregation. Uh, The looking all the time for application means that most of us become Arminians uh, which is a real problem because Paul wasn't Uh, not just because Arminius hadn't lived by that stage but because uh, he instructed Calvin Uh, but you see if, if all the time I'm looking for application then my whole methodology becomes Arminian so I'm always looking to tell people what they're to do and what they're not to do when in fact the Bible might be telling me what God has done without any necessary what you have to do flowing from it I'm using it uh, and people reading it for polemical purposes for their arguments with others be it apologetics or categoria I come in categoria to you at the back if you're not a reader or be it uh, within the Christian community and most of the commentaries are written in that kind of context they're written in the context of scholarship which today is built not on brains but on exhaustion, attrition and following fashion So most of the commentaries are getting bigger and bigger and bigger because they have to tell you what everybody has said and show that they're smarter than the others. How should we be reading our Bibles? What is the methodology for right understanding of the Word of God? Well, the answer is spiritual obedience. It is by the Spirit of God at work in our hearts that we will understand what the Word of God has said. And it is by the desire prompted by the Holy Spirit in our hearts to be obedient to everything that God says that we will be hearing and listening to what God says. That's why the spiritually obedient, uneducated has a greater chance of understanding God than the highly uneducated, carnal, disobedient person. Though the words have meanings and direct meanings and I'm not just moving here into total relativism as if the words don't actually have sentences and paragraphs that have meaning the only person who will hear the speaker is the one who wants to hear the speaker the only one who will understand a speaker is the one who wants to understand the speaker and the only one who wants to understand God those who by the spirit of god are trying to live a life of obedience to god and so prayer is not just a kind of uh necessary precedence the precedence that we need to go through before we study the word of god prayer is of the heart of what understanding the word of god is we always must approach it that way now all that is background challenge for us beginning of the year just to remind you again and to uh, explain in part why we need to look and understand Romans afresh because when I come to looking at Romans in the light of the commentaries what am I using this time? I'm using Cranfield which I still find the most helpful because he sticks closest to the text and because he is so uh, so economical in his providing you alternatives He says the words here can have six alternatives and he just sets them out what they are and he gives you the reasons why this will work or why that won't work and in two or three pages you can follow the whole argument whereas most of the other commentaries will give you 20 pages on the same arguments and not set them out nearly as clearly. So I find Cranfield very helpful although he's 20 years old now and so there's been lots of arguments since him. And you've got to remember he's a bartier and I know that's a fashion amongst evangelicals these days but that's just because evangelicals are losing their way because Bart was wrong um, I've been using Douglas Moo uh, who gives me masses of information and uh, John Dunn, uh, JD J. Dunn rather and uh, what's his name? Jim Dunn isn't it? James Dunn and um, uh, Luther uh, Chapo lent me his Luther commentary on Romans so they're the ones I've been using this time although I've dipped into others, Murray, etc. en route Now, I am a nobody and they are all great ones um, and yet I really am quite dissatisfied with the fare they feed us on Romans. I don't think they're actually understanding Romans as well as they're understanding each other I think they're writing for each other and to each other they're following the fashion of arguments that is around today but they do not tackle the problem versus. They tell you what everybody else has said, they give you the pros and cons of each argument, but they frequently then leave the argument unanswered, or the problems unanswered. They frequently will show how it connects into systematic theology, but uh, that is just defending their viewpoint. I am really fairly unhappy with my commentaries on romans of which i have many where do i see the problems well pick it up in uh, chapter 2 and uh, verse 6 god will give to each person according to what he has done to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory honor and immortality he will give eternal life but for those who are self-seeking who reject the truth and follow evil there will be wrath and anger there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil first for the jew then for the Gentile. But glory and honour and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God doesn't show favouritism. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but are those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed. When Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law they are a law for themselves even though they do not have the law since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts their conscience also bearing witness unto their thoughts now accusing now even defending them. This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secrets through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. Well enough there's a massive problem in that little passage for us isn't there? Of course there are continuing translation problems and when you're preaching through romans it's when you want to scream at the niv and throw it all away uh later this year spring this year um crossway publications will be bringing out the the new uh what's it called the english standard version which will be an updated uh and uh fully revised um revised standard version that is, when the NRSV uh, came out, the publishers of the old RSV gave up publishing it. So Crossways have bought the rights to the old RSV, which they are now reproducing, provided that they change the name, so the name is the English Standard Version, and made some editorial changes which pleased them because they didn't like the expiatory language of the the RSV, or the denial of the divinity of God, or the um, uh, the thee and thou. Well, every time there's an opportunity to refer to Jesus as God, so the divinity of God being part the divinity of Jesus, every time there's a reference to Jesus as God, it's excised in the RSV. Uh, it's back in the NRSV, but it was excised from the RSV. Um, so they've gone through and done a retranslation of the whole thing, following the RSV, and I think you'll find it'll be a much more useful Bible for careful Bible preaching than the NIV can be. Uh, the NIV is a, a modern translation and like therefore like modern choruses it gets tired within 10 to 20 years and I think it's very tired, well I'm very tired of it might be the same thing. Now what is the problem here? The problem here is that Paul is arguing we think by the end of Romans 3.20 that there is no one righteous under the law and yet in us, in this little section I just read he is arguing about some gentiles who do not have the law but by do things that required by the law and therefore seem to be those who will by persistence in doing good seeking glory honor immortality be given eternal life now how can you hold those things together some commentators say you can't hold them together that's paul is just contradictory he didn't understand himself That is an option that may be available to us at the end of the day, and can I suggest that if it is, then Christianity is wrong? The next option that people go for is the empty hypothetical category. That is, Paul is not actually saying there is such a person, he's just giving you the hypothetical possibility. Uh, Later on, he's going to argue there's nobody in that category. That is, if anybody kept the law perfectly, they would be righteous in God's sight a chapter later nobody keeps the law but they are all condemned so it is a category a hypothetical category but there is actually no individual cases inside it that may be the case he certainly is arguing about the nature of righteousness and the nature of the righteous judgment of God in verses 5 and 6 that's what introduces it Uh, the wording is careful in terms of those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and immortality etc it's not just saying there is such a person but he does indicate that there are those when Gentiles who do not have the law verse 14 do by nature things required by the law so it does speak as these people and it could be that what we have here is that case one of my problems with it is chapter 3 verse 9 what shall we conclude then? Are we any better off? No, not at all. We have already made the charge that Gentile, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Well, it's not that we are about to make the charge at 3.20 but that we have already made the charge that they are all alike under sin. So somewhere back here in chapter 2 is the condemnation of the Gentiles of all Gentiles How can that then fit in with this view that there are theoretically some Gentiles who are righteous in God's sight by their behaviour? And anyway, it does seem a slightly strange thing for him to be saying. An alternative view, which you'll find in Cranfield is the easiest place to get hold of it is that what you're dealing with here is the converted Gentile. Remember you see Cranfield's Abartian Barthians are dead set against natural religion in any form. And therefore it is unthinkable for a Bartian that a Gentile could by, be observant of the law. So there is an agenda running as to why he will find this passage unacceptable. Um, I'm not being critical of him. That's how we all function, isn't it? We all come to our conclusions first then look for the evidence later. That's, that's just the normal way in which you think. And then we pretend that we've looked at the evidence first and come to our conclusion later and that's also the normal pretense but you've got to keep remembering he's a Bartian but he does argue with great persuasion here in fact that what we're talking about here is the Gentiles who are regenerated by the gospel and so he's saying to the Jews when a Gentile converted by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ when born again by the spirit of God does the things of the law they are condemning you Jews who are not Christian and who are not keeping the law. And so you are they are fulfilling the law in ways that you are not fulfilling the law. And you've got to fulfil the law more than the Pharisees if you're to be in the kingdom of God, and the Gentiles are, and the Pharisees aren't. Certainly the end of the chapter picks up the idea of circumcision and even brings in the subject of the Spirit in verse twenty-nine. No a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit not by the written code, such a man's praise is not from men but from God. But yet if the whole passage is about the fact that no one is righteous before God by observance of the law, then the idea that the Gentiles are righteous before God by their regenerative observance of the law moves you into Roman Catholicism which no Bartian would ever like to be. that's what it's saying isn't it that you are so righteous that god will declare you righteous because of your actions now cranfield knows that's wrong and so he says and i quote it's absolutely vital to the true understanding of these verses that's one of those introductory phrases like obviously You immediately, when someone uses the word obviously, or surely, or without doubt, you know it's not obvious, it's not sure, and it is with great doubt. Well, when somebody says it's absolutely vital to the true understanding of these verses, you know he is in weak ground, shout loud, weak point. These verses, to recognise that the statement in verse 6 is not made in a legalistic sense. It's not an assertion of requital according to deserts. Verse 6. God will give to each person according to what he has done. It does sound like something to do with legal requital according to deserts. And that is not implied in verse 7 or verse 10, which it certainly does sound to be implied, or at least it's easy to infer from it. It's not implied that people referred to earn eternal life. Earn is his uh, italic word. The ergon agathon, the good work, is not regarded as constituting a claim upon God, but as an expression of faith and repentance. Well, that is completely orthodox theology to which I want to agree wholeheartedly. But it's not the end point of the logic of his argument it is he pushes an argument down one track which if you keep going down that track will lead you into massive heresy and so he then reminds you of the truth I have problems with the converted Gentile theory though I've believed it and even taught it so I come back to trying to understand it now the NIV doesn't help me because the NIV puts bracket marks in where they're not in verse 14 to 16 it changes the translation in verse 15, since they show the requirements of the law, uh, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. There's no verb there, and it's not since. It's because they show the requirements of the law written on their hearts. That's the verb. It, it's actually they show, in a sense, what is written on their hearts, not that it is written on their hearts. That gives you problems. And. Most of the commentaries don't connect verse 16 to what goes before, as can be seen by the uh, RSV, which puts brackets between verse 15 and 16, and the NIV, which puts brackets there. They disagree as to where the bracket starts, but they all agree that verse 16 is kind of afterwards. And so they all take verses 14 to 16, 15, or 13 to 15 as kind of parenthesis. It's a side argument that we can leave aside when I don't think it is. So there's my first problem. Let me show you my next problem. And, uh, you know, if I don't talk fast enough, I'll show you all the problems this morning and the solutions tomorrow when half of you are not going to be with us. Uh, Verse 19 of chapter 3 gives me a problem. You pick it up from verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, rather through the law we become conscious of sin. Now I don't have a particular problem with verse 20, seems straightforward to me. The end conclusion is, there are no individuals who will be declared righteous by observing the law what the law does is make you conscious of sin I also see from that as I see from the early part of chapter 2 that the concern that some modern people have that Luther and his friends were overly concerned with the individual conscience and not concerned with salvation history are wrong that is the passage is dealing with salvation history but it is also dealing with the individual conscience the salvation of the individual is not to be put aside as something like a 16th century preoccupation. Paul is concerned about every individual. That is part of it. Uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, in particular, you therefore have no excuse, O man, you who pass judgment on someone else. It's all individualistic, and the you's all there are singular you's, not plural. no, No one will be declared righteous in the sight by observing the law, That's what's being spoken of. But my problem is verse 19. And the problem is, what is the connection between the first half of the verse and the second half of the verse? In the Greek, as uh, in the English, there is a fairly strong connection. It's a purpose construction. In a hina clause. Um, Whether you take it as a result, so that, or in order that, uh, in order would most likely be better than so that rather than take the result it should be really a purpose clause there seems to be a disjunction between the first part and the second part of the verse a disjunction which again the commentators sometimes notice but generally skip straight past for me and uh, uh, answer in uh, I, what I find is is quite unhelpful ways It is they want to say it's an argument from the lesser to the greater if the jews who are under the law are found to be guilty well then the whole world must be guilty and therefore no one will be declared righteous but what it's, it's not saying that it's saying that the law speaks to those who are under the law And it speaks to those under the law so that the rest of the world would be silenced. Well, how does God speaking to the Jews condemn the world? What is the address to those who have the law mean for the rest of the world? That is, when you look at the quotes from verses 10 to 18, most of them are actually about the Jews, not the Gentiles. In fact, only one of them, I think, could you argue, could be about the Gentiles. That's the quote from Psalm 14. And even then, the Gentiles are not mentioned in Psalm 14. The evil people of Psalm 14 could be within Israel just as easily as they could be outside of Israel. So I think you—that that is, as a group of verses, to demonstrate verse 9, it doesn't really seem to work. We've made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are alike under sin as it is written and then he gives a whole series of verses which show Jews are under sin but he doesn't give you verses which show the Gentiles are under sin and then he says this law, the scriptures whether the law is Torah, the first five or the whole book we argue endlessly but the scriptures are written for those under the scriptures but it's written for those under the scriptures in order that those outside the scriptures will be condemned So that we will then know that all are unrighteous, that no one is free. Now, that seems a a slight difficulty to me, but others not. Here are some alternatives. For example, you can take every mouth to mean the Jews. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those under the law, so that every mouth, that is all the Jews, may be silenced. So that verse 19 is really saying, you see, the Jews are silenced. Now how do you come to that? Well, you come to that conclusion by saying, well, we've already established the Gentiles are guilty. Now all we're trying to do is establish the Jews are guilty as well. And so we argue from how we perceive the whole flow of the argument is happening. there's that marvellous section in the... uh, uh, in the castle, when they're in court, and the one unpleasant character in the whole thing—the sleazy lawyer who swears incessantly and totally unnecessarily—is uh, arguing before the uh, court about uh, the the rights of this family, and he says, "Well, it's in the constitution." And the judge says, "Where?" And he says, "Well, it's it, it's in the vibes. Uh, it's, it's the vibes of the whole constitution. It's 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 just the vibes." That seems to me to be the level of argument that is frequently used. (laughs) The sentence doesn't make sense, but in the whole overall vibes of what the book is about, it makes sense. And you say, but where? And they say, well, it's in the vibes. Um, uh, It may be that he is reaching the conclusion that the Jews are also guilty because he has dealt with the fact that the Greeks or the Gentiles are previously, he's argued, they're guilty. Only problem is when you go and look for where he's argued previously that the Greeks, not the Jews, are guilty, you can't find it. I mean, the argument runs. Chapter 1 is about the Gentiles, chapter 2 about the Jews, and now he's concluding. But the trouble is, chapter 1 is not about the Gentiles, never mentions the Gentiles. That's completely gratuitous. But you'll find that the argument as to why that's about the Gentiles is because it's the vibes. This is what the whole thing is about. But how do you know the whole thing is about it when you actually can't find any verse that says that that's what it's about? I just have problems. They have problems, but like Socrates, I'm smarter than them because I know I have. The normal argument is the the argument from the greater to the lesser. If the Jews are guilty, then the Gentiles must be. Dunn says the same kind of thing. It points to the, we know, to align Paul with the Jews and what he's saying is that he, he, he too is a Jew. And so he's arguing there's no special place for the pleading of the Jews. But it's not talking about that. It's talking about that the law comes to the Jews in order to silence the world. That's what it's saying. Now, could it mean that? well there's every chance isn't it but in order for it to mean that I may have to change my understandings Paul is saying what I'm not expecting him to say therefore what do I do well the one wrong thing to do is to fit his saying into my expectations what I've got to do now is to try and reframe my expectations I've got to revisit them and to to alter them uh, Murray, uh, he, he, he says that this actually is referring back to the Gentiles back in chapter 2. The ones who have the law within their own conscience. So they are a law to themselves. And so we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. The Jews who had a copy of it and the Gentiles who have it on their heart. But again, I think he's trying to solve his problem. Part of it is, goes back to three, nine which is really the difficult verse. Difficult to know how to translate. Are we any better off? The word better is in the uh, middle. Uh, if it's in the middle, it really means uh, have we, are we making excuse for ourselves? It could mean a passive, uh, and if that is the case, it means are we any worse? Uh, neither of those translations make sense to our commentators or our translators, and therefore they say, it. are we any better But is the only occasion in greek literature that we have that this middle is used with an active sense it could be you see the rules of grammar you make them up depending on the vibes that you have at the time and the vibes are all and the vibes here don't work with the word being translated as it is normally translated Uh, the rv of course didn't believe in vibes and so the rv says shall we what shall we conclude are we any worse no one has followed them uh, not in every way is the phrase not at all not completely we've already made the charge that Jews and Greeks that is that both Jews and Greeks that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin now part of my problem here is that if the vibes that people want to use in verse 19 are correct it should say that both Greeks and Jews It's got the Jews and the Greeks the wrong way around because he's wanting to now demonstrate the jews also so both the greeks and also the jews are but that's not the right way around but further my problem is that where has he made the charge that jews and greeks are all under sin he's hardly used the word sin up until this point and nowhere has he said jews and greeks are under sin yet he thinks he has said it so therefore I have misread him. Man says, well now, what I've been saying to you all along is that Eastern Suburbs is the greatest rugby league club. Then you think, I haven't heard him say that. You can conclude the man's a blithering idiot, doesn't know what he's talking about. Or, I wasn't listening properly. Let me go back and see where he actually mentioned that. See, he's saying everybody is under sin. Now, how and where is Paul saying that? Because that may help me understand why he then is quoting from the Old Testament about Jewish sinfulness and the judgment that has come upon the Jews. Which has got to do then with the law being given to the Jews in order to condemn the Gentiles. So there's a whole set of issues now that are not fitting in with, I'm not hearing this man properly because I'm obviously thinking in different categories and he's writing it. Well, one of the the glimmers of light I got uh, the other day, I was just about to get up and preach on chapter 3 verse 9 and we were reading in church um, the passage and as we came to verse 6, I I was following it uh, in the Greek and suddenly I, I got a glimmer of light as to what the passage was about. It's It's a tad difficult, isn't it? When you're just about to climb up in the pulpit and realize that what's in your notes is now completely different to what you think. What do you do then? Preach what you think, preach what's in your notes, not preach or take a different passage. Do John 3.16, for the night on the grounds that you're still right there. I just preached what's in my notes because what I'm thinking is nine times out of 10 wrong Uh, and it takes me an hour or two to work out what's wrong and so a thought that I've had on the way up the pulpit unlikely to be right Um, but I think it was this time 3.6 Pick it up, verse 3 What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? No, not at all Um, Let God be true and every man a liar, as it is written so, what may be proved right when you, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our unrighteousness brings God's, uh, God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust and bringing his wrath upon us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how could God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increase his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying and some claim that we say let us do evil that good may their condemnation is deserved uh i think it's craffield who said you know you finally come at the end of chapter two to what you think is now going to be a simple passage and you come to a more difficult passage in the first eight or nine verses than you were in the first two chapters and i i suspect he's right but i suspect it's because we're trying to answer the wrong questions what is three six about by my sin and condemnation God is being shown to be righteous in his judgments and therefore in a very perverted human fashion I can say well I'm doing God's a service aren't I I'm giving him the opportunity of showing how righteous he is and the answer is certainly not if that were so how could God judge the world well, how does that answer it? Cranfield, Paul rejects the notion that God is guilty of injustice on the ground that to ascribe injustice to God is essentially absurd, since it's tantamount to denial that what must be held axiomatic, namely, that God is the eschatological judge of the world. And then there's all kinds of verses that you can think of in. Uh, in the Old Testament, Genesis 18:5, will not the God of all the world do right? And so on. That is, the conclusion of verse 5, he says, is completely inconsistent with our Jewish systematic Old Testament systematic theology. God is the judge of all, the righteous judge of all, so any argument that winds up with God being an unrighteous judge must be wrong by definition. But if that was the case, why didn't Paul say that? Why does he say so how could God be the judge of the world? Why does he say how could God judge at all? Or why doesn't he say will the God who is righteous how can God who is righteous be unrighteous in his judgments? Or which is what they're wanting to say. What sparked my mind was I was still trying to wrestle, you see, with verse nineteen as I got up to preach and verse 19 talks about the whole world held accountable to God and verse 6 talks about God judging the world maybe maybe says my mind as I'm getting up to preach what we're talking about here is not some principle of God he must be the righteous judge because he's the judge of all the world but the plan of God to judge all the world and that the Jewish punishment the punishment of God upon the Jews for their failure to keep the law is the basis upon which God is going to judge the world. Now, so what we're dealing with here is much more biblical theology much more eschatology than principles of justice that is being spoken of of the character of God that the Jews now are under the judgment of God since the time of the dispersion sure a small group has come back to jerusalem but they have lived in captivity and the vast majority of them have continued to be dispersed until this day and so they are longing for the redemption of jerusalem the pious holy ones are longing for the redemption of jerusalem like anna and simeon in acts chapter in luke chapter 2 they know that the age of salvation hasn't come they are still in the age of judgment and condemnation and so what has taken place so far is the law has been given so that the Jews in their disobedience to God will be condemned and in their condemnation the judgment of the world is prefigured now how can that be down the track well you go back to the law being given see in Deuteronomy chapter 4 come with me to Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 5 see I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great as to have their gods near them in the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? What other nation is so great as to have such righteous decrees and laws as this body of laws I am setting before you today? That is, Israel is given the law in the face of the nations israel has is given the law in such a way that the nations are to see israel and to say god is truly with them to say that law is the right law the gentiles will understand the law enough to know when they see it embodied in the obedience of israel they will say it is right it is true that is the law was not given for the israelites alone the law was given to uphold the principles of justice for the world. That it actually had an out, that it actually had an outward looking effect. And part and parcel of the law is the condemnation of those who would be disobedient. So when Israel fulfills the law, the nations are blessed by seeing the truth of the law. And when Israel disobeys the law, the nations are blessed by seeing what happens to those who are disobedient to the law so the nations are to recognize the truth the wisdom the justice the righteousness in the law of god as it is demonstrated in the obedience and the disobedience so the nations are to recognize the truth the wisdom the justice the righteousness in the law of god as it is demonstrated in the obedience and the disobedience and punishment of Israel. You might like to ponder back into Genesis 18, which is a little passage that I often note that people don't pay too much attention to. That is that when God is about to condemn Sodom and Gomorrah, he calls Abraham aside and shows him what he is going to do because Abraham is going to be the father of many nations. See, the law was given to Abraham then, not just given to Moses. He was given to Abraham then. The idea of right and wrong and punishment was given to Abraham to teach the many nations of which he is to be the father. That is, the will of God and the mind of God has been sent to the world outside of the, the covenant uh, contract that took place in the Exodus at Mount Sinai. And that covenant contract was the clearest, most, most perfect expression to any nation that had come. But the nations around would be able to recognise those truths because they'd already been taught them, at least through Abraham anyway. Remember the Moabites, the Edomites, they're the descendants of Abraham. They will have had some of the teachings of Abraham, their forefather, so that when they see the Mosaic law, they'll say, yeah, that's the real one. That's the truth. You've got it. And so they will know what the law is. Not that they will have the law in their hearts it, it, that, is, that is already assumed but they'll actually have the content of the law in their hearts the real content of the law now they may have had it from Adam as well there are other reasons, ways in which it may be done um, but they certainly have it from Abraham as a clear example and you think back there are all kinds of examples of law keeping and law breaking prior to the giving of the law uh, Potiphar's wife trying to seduce uh, uh, Jacob uh, Joseph he refuses doesn't he see not a right thing adultery is a wrong thing wouldn't do such a thing or again Moses saying to uh, the two Israelites who are fighting each other uh, you are brothers you should not do this see so he has an understanding of the concept of brotherhood that would make fighting an impossibility it is a wrong thing that is, there is morality, there is an understanding of right and wrong and of the character of God, and you see it in the, also the palming off of uh, Sarah to um, uh, the kings around about as the half-sister there's there's an understanding of right and wrong independent and outside of the law the The knowledge of God is out there, now of course, again, you see the Barthians have a terrible problem here, because natural law, natural religion that's the great no-no, you can't go down that route but to me the scriptures are full of examples of the things outside the law being part of, to say nothing of course of the odd ones like Jethro who's a priest of Yahweh though he's a Midianite um, doesn't fit into anybody's system that one, any more than Enoch who walked with God and was no more uh, there are all kinds of bits and pieces that don't fit in but there's some more fundamental revelations that you have of the law, now what is this law in the hearts of the Gentiles then in chapter 2 of Romans, let's go back there if it's not hypothetical and empty, it is not wrong. And if it's not the converted Gentiles, who could it be? Well, the hypothetical one is the, 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 the closest to, I think, what it is. It's not who. Um, it's... I had a new phrase I worked out today. It's the real category. It's not a hypothetical category. It's a real category of condemnation not salvation it's not talking about people being saved it's talking about people being condemned that is pick up verse 12 all who sin apart from the law will perish apart from the law and all who sin under the law will be judged by the law you you are destroyed in your lawlessness or you are judged by the law that you have and in that judge will be condemned now it's those who hear the law who are righteous it's not sorry, not those who hear the law that's righteous it's those who obey the law who are righteous when the Gentiles it's not Greeks here it is Gentiles when the Gentiles who don't have the written law I take it who do not have the law do by nature things that are required by the law they are a law for themselves in the, even though they don't have the law for they show the requirements of the law written on their hearts. So when they do the right thing because they believe it is the right thing and indeed it is consistent with the law of God because it is the right thing then they are showing that they have the righteousness written on their hearts. The pagan doesn't only always on all occasions under every circumstance do the wrong thing does he? there are many pagans, many non-Jews who did the right thing and whenever they do the right thing because it is right they are demonstrating an understanding of the righteousness of God the Hammurabi Code has lots of righteous laws in it that is totally consistent with the law of Israel but why is he saying that? well since they show the requirements of the law written on their hearts their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Conscience is, thanks to Jimmy Cricket, a guide to how you are to live. But conscience in the Bible is more often, vastly more often, a condemnation of how you have lived. Conscience is nearly all bad conscience about the past in the Bible, rather than an arbiter, a guide for the future which is how Jiminy Cricket has taught us to think of the word conscience. And so the conscience of the Gentile will accuse and will try by his reasoning to excuse himself. Because I refuse to steal, even though I'm not a Jew and don't have the law, because I refuse to steal, I believe stealing is wrong. Because I believe stealing is wrong, When I fudge on my tax forms, my conscience tells me that I am guilty of the law that I am breaking. And so my conscience, my inner motivations for struggles of morality will demonstrate my failure to me. Which then ties directly into verse 16. This will take place, again poor translation, This will take place on the day when God will judge men's secret thoughts through Jesus Christ as my gospel declares. That is, the law written on the hearts of the the Gentiles will not excuse him. The law written on the heart of the Gentiles will condemn him. That's what it's about. And you know the law written on their hearts whenever they stand up for morality. In other words, verse 1, you therefore have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judge the other you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things see this is all about charging that everybody is under sin be it the jew who owns the law or be it the gentile who has high moral principles they are both under sin and so both will be condemned and the gentile will be condemned by the very law that is written on his heart and you know the law that's written on his heart by his high moral principles which he does not keep. Nobody keeps them. And so we are, because we are all under sin we'll all condemn, be condemned and perish on the last day when the secrets of all hearts will be made known. So you might see a good man, a good woman, a Mother Teresa, And you might say, well, surely she will be saved, for look at all the good things she taught. But if you knew the insides of Mother Teresa's heart and mind and conscience, you would know that she was very conscious of failing in keeping the law and failing to be as loving as she should be, failing to be as kind to other people. And her wrestles of mind and heart and conscience, that will all be shown on the last day. And so instead of saying that person is a truly moral, good, righteous person, on the last day, you will say that person is just like me, as guilty as guilty. And their very understanding of righteousness is what will condemn them on the last day. That is, I think Brunner was right rather than Bart in chapter 1. For Bart will not allow any knowledge of God from nature. Whereas Brunner would say, Yes, well, you know God from nature, and that is why you know you're condemned. The knowledge of God is available to all mankind in nature and the knowledge of God's law is written on the hearts of mankind we have eternity on our hearts but the knowledge of the eternity on our hearts in uh, Ecclesiastes 3 if you remember is the knowledge that frustrates us into condemnation it doesn't save us it just reinforces our condemnation so I take it's a real category of condemnation not just a hypothetical one so what is the thing about? Well, God is to judge the whole world by the secrets of the human heart. He will judge the whole world by his righteousness. He has given to Israel his law knowing that Israel would be disobedient to the law and knowing that he would condemn Israel because in the condemnation of Israel for their failure to keep the law that which is a secret thing in the heart of all pagans is an explicit open thing here is a group of people who actually have that law written out on tablets of stone and here because they are under sin like you are under sin you will see their failure to keep it and therefore God's righteousness in punishing injust- punishing people such as in the Babylonian captivity or in King David in Psalm fifty one, the King of the people of Israel, which is what is being quoted for us there in chapter three verse four, so that you may prove right when you speak and prevail when you judge is Psalm fifty one. Because David says in sin was I conceived, I hold being, I am sold under sin, and you are right in punishing me God. And, and indeed. God's justice is demonstrated in the dealing with the Jews so God is condemning the Jews in order to show the justice that he has in judging the world and condemning the world because he has given the law to those under the law in order that every mouth in the world would be condemned for when we see now come back to chapter 2 verse 17 now if you call yourself a Jew how are you going folks coming up the home straight oh, much easier to talk than this to listen isn't it yeah there you go 2.17 now you if you call yourself a Jew if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God if you know his will and approve what is superior because you are instructed by the law if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind a light for those in dark uh, an instructor of the foolish a teacher to infants because you have in the law the embodiment of the knowledge and truth stop because the NIV has translated the word brag instead of glory in verse 17, you think all that's negative. I actually think, or you, I, I think it's all negative, but I think when you read it in the Greek it's all positive. This is the great claim of the Jew. The Jew has everything. He has all the advantages of the oracles of God, as it puts it in chapter 3 verse 1. Are we better off? Have we any advantage? Yes, we've got the very Word of God. We have the light, the truth, we, we know the details, we can teach the world, we can teach our children, we have the relationship with God. You then, verse 21, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? Do you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the Lord do you dishonor God by breaking the law as it is written? God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Uh, quote from Isaiah 52 and Ezekiel 36. That is, the failure of the Jews to keep the law brought God's name into disrepute. The condemnation of the Jews in the Babylonian captivity brought dishonour upon the name of God amongst the Gentiles. The Gentiles all laughed at God. He has his people, but they don't live as his people. It's like a marriage, uh, Exodus 20. That is, God has taken unto himself a bride and the bride has gone out and committed adultery. Even on the wedding night with the... The, the, uh, the golden calf you shall not take my name in vain and what have they done they've taken the name of God in vain they haven't lived his way they've brought dishonor upon him in the way in which they've lived and then when they get put off in <laughs> captivity all the nations laugh and say well the God of Israel is not much good look he can't even look after his own people can he and so they blaspheme the name of God amongst the nations but they do it amongst the nations Israel was chosen by God for the salvation of the world Israel was given the law for the sake of the world Israel was the the demonstration of the justice of the world of the God to the world they were never expected really to keep the law it was always the expectation you see it in Deuteronomy 27 28 the expectation of God is that they will not keep this law they were given the law in order to fail in order to demonstrate the righteousness of God. Well then, says the Israelite, in his godlessness, we're doing God a big favour, aren't we? And that is the point of verse 6. Certainly not. God is not being done a favour. But that also, friends, is the point of Romans 9 to 11, isn't it? Come with me just across there quickly, Romans 9. One of you will say to me then, verse 19, why does God still blame us? Blame us? Uh, for who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? What shall, it, uh, what, shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why do you make me like this? Does but not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay? Some pottery for noble purposes, some for common use. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he has also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? What if God has this great plan for calling a people to himself through mercy? And part of that plan is to raise up a nation who will be given his law so to demonstrate to the world that being under sin you are unable to keep the law and you need mercy and so the law is given to this nation and the condemnation is given to this nation for the sake of the salvation of the rest of mankind for God is the judge of all the world and the saviour of his people well then what is Romans 1 to 3 about what's about Habakkuk I told you that last year it's about Habakkuk you see Habakkuk is saying how can you send the Babylonians to punish us because they're more wicked than we are and God says wait in faith and the full justice will come the full righteousness is yet to come the real judgment is yet to come but in the meantime you are sufficiently unrighteous to be punished by the Babylonians God gives them over to run this world in their unrighteousness now that is what Romans 1 is about the the giving over of mankind to injustice and to immorality and to destruction. And notice the end of chapter Mm 1, verse 32, another verse that's very difficult to understand and even harder to understand in combination with chapter 2, verse 1. Although they know God's righteous decrees that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things but also approve those who practice them. You therefore have no excuse you who pass judgment on someone else for at whatever point you judge the others you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. The real contrast of verse 32 and, and chapter 2 verse 1 is the contrast between third person, they, and first person and no, second person, you. And it's a contrast between the plurals, they, them, and you individually, O man. The world has come under the judgment of the Babylonians yeah, in this case the Greeks. Uh, the Romans, whoever, the pagans who are, but they know God's righteous decrees, they know that what they are doing is wrong, but they go on doing it. You think you're different because, be you a Jew or a Greek, it matters a lot, you have higher moral principles, but you do the same thing yourself. And God judges by what you do, not by your principles. In fact, your principles will condemn you or the law that you have will certainly (laughs) condemn you. In fact, the giving of the law and the failure to keep it has brought blasphemy on the name of God. And so, well, are we Jews any better off having the law? Well, yes, because you have the very law of God. But no, because you're under sin also. And so that is why you are under the condemnation that you're under at the moment, because God's aim in giving you the law was to bring everybody under condemnation at the end. Therefore, verse 20, chapter 3, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, the law, through the law, we become conscious of sin. Luther was right. But now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. Now, All that's great news. Full stop, end of story. But that's not where Paul stops it. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus see our problem today is we don't believe in the wrath of God Paul's problem is Habakkuk's problem he doesn't believe in the mercy of God see the Babylonians destroying Israel was the expression of the justice and wrath of God our problem is how can God be angry the real problem is how can God be only that angry why isn't he angrier why does he do the job fully and completely That's the real problem. God has shown mercy by withholding his final judgment until the time comes when his righteousness is established by his son's death and resurrection. And he does it in such a way as to demonstrate that he is just and will justify those who have faith in Jesus Christ. So God is working his purposes out through Israel and the nations Four individuals in preparation for the final judgment when we will be judged individually and at that time we'll always all be condemned unless we are in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ who has died on our behalf. Now, by careful organisation I have made sure that there is no time for questions. you see what I mean about you can't make it simple when you haven't mastered it what I've just gone through is not simple it's not clear why is it not simple and not clear because I haven't mastered it what I'm seeking to do is to understand Romans which previously I I haven't done I think as well as I have now I've preached better sermons in the past uh, because they've been simple because I've mastered what I have mastered in the past and it's been simple enough. What I have wound up with is the faith for all once delivered to the saints. Calvin, Luther, etc. They were right in their understanding of the gospel as it is revealed to us in the book of Romans. I've actually changed not one whit of my theological understanding. My systematic theology hasn't moved a millimetre. I am Whatever I understand in the new perspective, totally unpersuaded by it. Uh, It's just wrong. It's just another track back to Roman Catholicism that has misunderstood the gospel yet again. I haven't moved a millimetre. But I have grown in my understanding of the Word of God by not running away from the problems, but wrestling with them and struggling with them. Um, Next February, when you come to AIM, and I'm still on Romans 2, 3, you will see whether I have made progress. Uh, In the meantime, I hope that the struggles that I have will help you see and encourage you not to be downhearted in the fact that you haven't understood better than you better than you thought you would or should, and will push you on from having the answers already determined before you prepare your sermons. And keep struggling, keep wrestling with what the text. I also hope that there's a little bit more of a glimmer of what Romans one three is about. And that it really ties in much more to Romans 9 to 11 than we have done previously. We're still dealing, it's the same issue. If you think Romans 1 to 3 is about the demonstration that everybody is sinful, can I ask you why Paul says in Romans 5 that we've all constituted sin in Adam? Because he says in one sentence what you thought it took him three chapters to say. If he wanted to say everybody is sinful Romans 1-3 to 3 is a long-winded way of doing it and a very complicated way of doing it and Romans 5 is a dead simple way of doing it and why did it take him four and a half chapters to discover the simple way? I think he's saying something far more than that everybody is sinful. It's far more than that. It's the place and role of the law on our hearts and in the Torah in bringing everybody to see the justice of God in the condemnation of the world and that salvation can only be in the righteousness of God that comes from the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on our behalf it's much more than that everybody is sinful that he's arguing for but you'll give me peace over morning tea to have my coffee won't you Archie I'm going to lead in prayer or you're going to lead in prayer and you'll make your answers. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We do pray, Father, you'd forgive us for our denseness of mind and heart that we so often mistake and misunderstand it. We do pray, Father, that you'd help us to so wrestle with your word that we might see what truths you have for us and glory in your greatness as we see more and more of the wonder of what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. So help us, we pray, Father that as we teach others, we might model to them not only the truths of your word, but your spiritual work in us, pushing us on to understanding and obedience, that we might show them our progress in life and doctrine, and so by save not only ourselves, but our hearers. And we pray it in Jesus' name.